Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we'll be joined by journalist Max Burns to talk about how Elon Musk's belief that he doesn't have to follow laws or regulations is uh, getting Twitter into some hot water. And then we'll be joined by epidemiologist Stephanie Langle to talk about where we are with COVID. Haven't talked about the pandemic for a while. And it certainly seems like most people are done with it, have moved on, but an average of 3,700 people are dying every week from um, from COVID. So not quite done. But first, um, I just want to talk briefly about what a bizarre reality we're dealing with at present. Uh, in the economy, right, inflation is cooling quickly. Federal Reserve hiked interest rates yet again this week anyway. I don't know what's going on there. Um, they almost seem intent on delivering a recession, but the economy seems pretty resilient. Um, all the economic indicators are really strong, but half the population thinks that we're in a recession right now. Uh, this is in part due to the um, the financial press's tendency to see um, to always see a, a a downturn right around the corner. Very negative. A negative negativity bias is common in economic reporting. Meanwhile, the GOP has taken the House and they are threatening to drive the global economy into a ditch, not just the American economy, but the, the whole world, right, by uh, undermining the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. It's based on this idiotic notion that raising the debt limit increases the debt when it just authorizes the government to pay the bills that it already ran up. Now, blowing through the debt limit in itself does increase the debt because it makes it more expensive for us to borrow money. We have to pay more for money if we're not trusted, if we don't have good credit. So they actually are working against their stated goals, but they don't really have stated goals. It's not a coherent thing. Eric Levitz has a good piece uh, on this in the New Yorker, uh, sorry, in New York Magazine. And maybe we'll see if um, we can get Eric on the show in the coming weeks to talk about it. But his point is briefly, that Republicans are like the proverbial dog that caught the car. They know they want to hold the economy hostage. They know that they want to extract some sort of concessions from the Senate and the White House, but they don't have a coherent idea of what those concessions should be. And if you ask different ones, they're going to tell you different things. Specifically, they say that they want to balance the budget within 10 years. Okay. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but fine. But, because Trump has said that they need to keep their hands off Medicare and Medicaid, um, Medicare and Social Security, sorry. Um, according to Speaker McCarthy, those things are off the table. They're not going to go after, quote, entitlements, right? So they're Republicans, and that means that deep defense cuts aren't on the table. So you've taken off Social Security, Medicare, defense spending, and although they have left Medicaid theoretically on the table, Medicaid helps their base, rural people, uh, much more than it helps the Democratic base. Uh, Medicaid help, keeps rural hospitals a lot, uh, afloat. So um, what that leaves is just discretionary spending, and according to the New York Times, in order to achieve a balanced budget in 10 years, just looking at discretionary spending, they would have to cut that. That means every other program 
by 85%. Ludicrous. So Levitz writes, and I quote, such draconian spending reductions would upend myriad services that Republican constituencies rely on and countless projects that bring investment and jobs to red districts. Thus, any set of fiscal demands that McCarthy releases will either betray conservative true believers by failing to balance the budget, or it will generate propaganda for Biden's reelection by aligning the Republican Party with gargantuan cuts to popular programs, all while antagonizing Donald Trump, national security hawks, Biden district Republican representatives, or some combination of the three. Okay, so Kevin McCarthy has a five-vote margin. He can lose four Republicans if Dems hold together which they have every reason to do. And here's the thing. Three Republicans have just said outright that they aren't going to vote to raise the limit under any circumstances. They're just not going to do it. They want to burn it all down. The default on the debt is their goal. And I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't even know what those people are thinking. Maybe they figure they'll gather up their AR-15s and their families and go to their ranches and just wait for the rapture. I don't know. I I tend to think that they don't know what the debt ceiling is. Remember, these are not serious people. (sighs) Now, as some of you may recall, if you're a regular listener, I was not a a giant um, fan of Joe Biden's uh, during the 2020 Democratic primaries. Not a fan, not a, not a Biden supporter. But he has pleasantly surprised me, and he's handled the Republicans' craziness very effectively by just sitting back and being unflappable. I really, you know, I'm flappable. I flap. He's unflappable. And his position here is that he will eat his ice cream and let Kevin McCarthy twist in the wind. His message is very simple. Let's negotiate by all means. Let's negotiate. But let's do the negotiation the way we're supposed to, which is during the budget process. Right? Everybody can go watch Schoolhouse Rock. House passes a budget. Senate passes a budget. They negotiate. Goes to the White House. He signs it or he vetoes it. That's how it works. The budget process, by the way, is where deficits are either increased or decreased. It doesn't happen when the debt limit has to be raised. It happens when the budget process is is happening. Okay. So it looks like this is a a good strategy. McCarthy seems, McCarthy met with Biden and said, oh, we can make some tweaks to spending. And okay, you know, that's a long long departure from we're going to balance the budget in 10 years. We're going to cut everything draconian, this and that, right? So it's looking like it's um, a sound strategy to say, well, we're not going to negotiate on this. It's crazy. It's your job to keep the lights going. It's your job to the constitution requires that we do not default on the, on the debt. So there is, however, a very significant potential problem with the strategy. And I think Republicans may help the Democrats overcome it. The potential problem comes down to this. Most people don't pay close attention to this stuff. And the ostensibly neutral media, as we know, is devoted to normalizing 
all of this craziness in obvious and subtle ways. So we can expect that a lot of people are just going to get the idea that this is gridlock, generic gridlock. Both sides are unable to come together and they won't get the idea, the, the reality of how, of how wild it is to threaten to tank the global economy in order to force the rest of government to adopt unpopular policies. Now, the reason to have some hope on that front is that two years after the GOP's crackpot coup attempt, this Republican caucus is just too disorganized and too divided and too fractious and, let's face it, downright bonkers for people not to notice, right? It's too, they're too bonkers for reporters, even, even mainstream political press reporters, Beltway reporters, to fail to, uh, to write about their dysfunction and detachment from reality. And if you're a person of the broad left who isn't always fond of the Democratic Party, you may be used to being frustrated by their poor messaging. And often, when we say poor messaging, that's, in fact, in many cases, um, at least in large part, a result of their poor messaging infrastructure. That's another story altogether. But here's the thing. When Republicans really overreach, when they really go off the rails, that's when um, that's when the journalistic establishment tends to communicate in a straightforward way with the public, and, and the public tends to get it. So that's the, uh, the hope here. In any event, let's always keep in mind, as this debt ceiling fight progresses, that this is no way to govern a country. Let's keep in mind how insane it is. Um, and and let's let's keep in mind that they don't have a plan. They don't have a proposal. They just hold one chamber of commerce, Congress, and their base is uh, demanding a pointless fight that they're giving them because they have to. And uh, with that, let's uh, let's move on with the show. We'll take a quick break and then we'll be right back with Max Burns. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You know, I want to share something that I'm actually a bit embarrassed about, um, and that is that I find Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter to be really depressing, like demoralizing even. I I was a serious Twitter addict, and I I feel it as a personal assault in a way that I would not have expected. Um, It's clear that Musk is gaming the algorithms to promote noxious right-wing content. He's banned critics. 
He's welcomed back all sorts of toxic wingnuts, including literal Nazis like Andrew Anglin. Um, he's used this internal Twitter files to create a right-wing disinformation campaign based on the ludicrous conspiracy theory that big tech's moderation policies are a plot to silence conservatives, which we know is actually the opposite of reality. Um, and uh, he has done all of this because he embraces that, that stupidity, as he does pretty much every other right-wing conspiracy theory, including the really uh, horrific claims that Nancy Pelosi's husband was attacked as part of a lover's quarrel. What an asshole. So anyway, I'm joined now by Max Burns. Max has written for many outlets. He is the author of a substack called The Third Degree. You can search for that or go to maxburns.substack.com. And Max has a good deep dive on how Elon's crazy management style is uh, getting Twitter into hot water. It's titled, As Twitter's Legal Woes Mount, It's Elon Versus Everyone. Max Burns, welcome back to We've Got Issues. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for taking the time. And I, I should tell listeners that Max has actually written several pieces about Twitter's uh, tumultuous new management, which listeners uh, should check out. Max, here in the U.S., the government is constrained from regulating private companies' content uh, by the First Amendment, although some, some right-wingers refuse to accept that. But that's, that is the case, and it's not true overseas, especially in Europe. How is Musk's uh, capricious kind of leadership leading to legal woes for the bird side? Well, one of the challenges I think that a lot of people worried about uh, from the outset of Musk taking over Twitter was that he was very open about how little he thought of European content regulations, everything from uh, the general data privacy regulations to things concerning hate speech in countries like Germany. And now that's starting to really bite him. Uh, we saw this week a lawsuit filed in Germany by a, an anti-hate speech group called HateAid that uh, essentially alleges that Twitter is not enforcing its own terms of service in removing anti-Semitic neo-Nazi content that is very much a crime to, to publish and to promote in Germany. And it's not even clear that Elon Musk has the staff at Twitter anymore to actually engage in that kind of content regulation. So this lawsuit is really asking the straightforward question of, are tech companies bound by their own terms of service. And if past uh, pressures have been any indication, the answer will be very costly for Musk and Twitter. Yeah. And here in the U.S., um, there are other aspects of this business that are regulated. Can you talk a little bit about the consent decree that Twitter is under in, in relation to data privacy? And um, what Musk firing three-quarters of the staff or whatever um, what kind of threat that poses to the company's adherence? Yeah, this has been a really unique position for Twitter. They've been under a consent decree with the Department of Justice for the past decade, uh, which basically stems to the Jack Dorsey era and mishandling of user data privacy. Uh, the Department of Justice is essentially not convinced that Twitter knows how to protect its own users. And now that's gotten even more acute. Uh, as you mentioned, some of Elon Musk's first actions were firing the Trust and Safety Council, disbanding the Twitter leadership that handled content moderation because he felt that it was a, a secret conspiracy of the left. And, and now, essentially, there is nobody at Twitter to interface with the government 
on these issues of, of content and data. And the FTC uh, is now very concerned that, that there's not actually the capacity at Twitter to comply with that consent decree. They have said, uh, not for the first time, uh, but, but again recently, that there is uh, deep concern that Musk is not taking this seriously, that the way he's, he's rewriting Twitter's terms of service uh, seemingly to justify his actions against users he disagrees with, uh, the way that he's enabled people through things like the Twitter files to gain access to what should be very sensitive and very tightly held user data is, is worrying from a legal standpoint. And Musk, for his part, uh, as as essentially told the government to shove it. Yeah, I mean he's he's well known for his contempt for regulators in general, and he seems to think that he's above the law. Um, he had laid off a lot of those laid off, layoffs that he announced very soon after taking over Twitter um, violated local laws in California and elsewhere uh, that require a certain amount of notice, um, etc. So. You mentioned that the a huge share of Twitter's workforce, among among that huge share of Twitter's workforce that Musk laid off were this, the many members of the site's trust and safety team. And I'm not sure you can answer this question, but to what degree are these moves driven by Musk's ideology and belief in this conspiracy theory? And how much is a result of him overpaying for Twitter by about $20 billion and then scaring away advertisers? Right. I think one of the challenges is trying to figure out what exactly Elon Musk's ideology is. He seems to be deeply influenced by these these right wing grifters who have have come to to be the echo chamber we see in the recommended content on Twitter. I mean, he fired his own chief counsel because he became convinced that he was helping Democrats uh, enable child sex trafficking. And as a result, I mean, there is just content chaos across Twitter. We've seen instances of hate speech rise significantly. Uh, Anti-Semitic speech surged 61% in the first two weeks that Elon Musk owned Twitter. Uh, Hate speech against black people has vaulted a thousand percent almost. And most of that content now, if you report it, uh, you will find that it no longer violates Twitter's policies because Twitter has uh, no team there to enforce it. And where there is a team, uh, Elon Musk appears to be allowing them to to sort of make it up as they go. His his chief privacy person there, Ella Irwin, uh, now has a, a bit of a scandal herself because it's uh, come out from some leaked information from Twitter employees that he has essentially empowered her to violate Twitter's terms of service uh, in order to carry out his vendettas against liberals, against reporters, against people that he thinks are being too mean to him. Yeah. And, you know, a system where your your trust and legal compliance people are the people you're allowing to break the law most flagrantly is not a system that's inspiring a lot of confidence from regulators anywhere in the world. I mean, this is a big reason why um, there's been this precipitous drop-off in Twitter advertisers. Uh, people don't, you know, advertisers don't want their content next to hate speech. I mean, it's just really that simple. Um, the the King of England, which I still have kind of a hard time saying the King of England. It's still, just because I'm an old dude, it's, it seems like it should be the Queen of England. But it's, anyway, the King of England, or should I say the Crown Estate, which is the entity that manages the 
royal family's vast real estate holdings, sued Twitter for unpaid rent in its London offices. Twitter stopped paying rent at its San Francisco headquarters the day Elon took over. Employees in its Asian headquarters, uh, which is located in Singapore, were told to work from home as well. I think that was just this week, maybe last week. And I should note here that Elon, like other uh, right-wingers who are hostile toward COVID mitigation measures, has railed against people working from home. Do we have a sense of what the end game is here? It's it's very odd for an established company to just say, oh, we're going to stop paying rent in all of our offices. Oh, it, it for sure is. And this sort of follows the, the Donald Trump approach of of arguing that, you know, we're going to, to withhold payment from contractors and see if we can shake them down for for a discount. But the challenge is these are not, you know, mom and pop contractors. These are major commercial real estate management companies. They are not, they have as, as many and in some cases more lawyers than Twitter and Elon Musk does. They're not going to settle for 50 cents on the dollar of rent. And and the scary thing for Elon Musk is Twitter no longer has the cash flow to reliably make those payments. Advertising fell over 70% last month. Uh, the, the fourth quarter revenue for Twitter fell by over a third. I mean, most companies that are in that situation, you see their board of directors throw out their CEO and appoint someone new. But in this case, there is no board of directors. Elon Musk is the whole show. So it really is up to him how long he wants to continue to finance this. But for now, yeah, it's looking like they're planning to to not renew these leases. And it's it's unclear they would be allowed to anyway, given how badly they've earned those relationships with their vendors. Yeah. Um, a new survey was released this week. It found a sharp drop off in Twitter users as well. So you have this... Advertisers fleeing. Um, so this study came out. It was a big cohort, 25,000 respondents, conducted by researchers at Northeastern University, Harvard, Rutgers, and Northwestern. And it found that Twitter's users have declined by um, almost 9% since Elon took over. That's being driven by a decrease among Democrats. That isn't being <coughs> made up for by enough conservatives who already had Getter and Truth Social and Parler and all these other toxic right-wing alternatives. Uh, This was a survey of of U.S. users, I should say, and I should also note that this survey was conducted online, so it's biased towards people who use social media. Other studies have found about one in five adults overall use Twitter. Anyway, I want to ask you a little bit about how the user experience on Twitter has been changing. Um, David from the Never Trump Conservative posted recently that he was no longer seeing tweets by the people he follows. Um, is is that true? And and why would that be? Yeah, that's actually a very intentional decision here by Musk. Uh, there is now the the two channels that used to sort of guide the flow of content uh, used to default to showing you people you followed and their most popular content. Now, if you look at the top of Twitter. Uh, you'll see that that defaults to For You, which is essentially Elon Musk's curated list of things he thinks that you should be paying attention to. And that's whether or not you follow the the accounts involved. And it is no coincidence that the accounts being promoted there, uh, just looking at mine right now, are Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gaetz, Jordan Peterson, uh, a few right-wing hangers-on that are, are reliable retweeters of Elon Musk, 
uh, this is a very conscious attempt to to correct for that that imagined liberal bias by sort of stacking the conversational deck even more in favor of of conservatives. And and that's not really necessary. I mean, the the Institute for Strategic Dialogue found that far from being sort of censored, uh, conservative voices and dialogue are sort of dominating the conversation on Twitter even before this change. But now it's become the whole show. Uh, occasionally, you'll get you know a celebrity or some entertainment figure, but it's mostly going to be right wing politicians, right wing pundits, and the goal is to sort of get you mad and get you responding and get you to engage to increase the engagement metrics of the site and use those to draw back advertisers. Uh, problem is that's not working. The advertisers are leaving and the users are leaving too. Even my dog is mad about this. Um, Max, before I let you go, I want to ask you a little bit of a tough question. I see that you're active on Twitter, uh, not just promoting your work, which I still I still log in to do. Um, you're tweeting more or less like normal. It seems to me that if uh, decent people went inactive, at least, uh, there's no need to delete accounts entirely, but just pulled back on engagement, decreased the site's active user base, that would make it more likely that Musk's project here to turn Twitter into this red-pilling machine would fail, and perhaps the site would go... Uh, into bankruptcy or otherwise end up being run by a uh, a corporate dweeb who isn't motivated by conspiracy theories and wants to attract, uh, bring back users and advertisers. Um, so I just wonder, like, you know, I don't know. how are, Do you not see this as an ethical question? I, I do. And it's sort of, we're seeing this happen already, um, that, that I, I personally, my engagement has gone way down. I took all of January off and I'm now sort of doing a month observing it. And then a month just away to spare my mental health. There's uh -huh. only so much Matt Gates I can consume before I get a nosebleed. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, you're right. And it's, it's a challenge. Elon Musk certainly realizes it's a challenge. He's uh, reintroduced the idea of selling stock in Twitter to private investors for uh, the purchase price that he paid for it, which is kind of like trying to sell a burning Tesla for sticker price. <laughs> Nobody's going to want to buy it. Yeah. And and as that revenue goes down and this pool of, of eyes shrinks, it, it doesn't just become less commercially viable. It becomes less culturally relevant. There just aren't the people on there talking, making the conversations that made Twitter so essential. Yeah. And that's that's something it, it's not clear Elon Musk knows how to address that or if he's even interested in doing that. You know, it's a classic collective action problem, right? Because, I, I mean, if if all of us were to move, um, it would have a detrimental effect on Musk's Twitter and also make alternatives like Mastodon, where I am active now, um, more appealing because that's where the conversation is is going on. And, you know, I, uh, I understand that people could come down on the other side of this question, but it, it just bothers, the thing that bothers me is that I see a lot of people who seem to not see it as an ethical question at all. And they, you know, talk about how the user experience, it might be changing or might be turning them off, but they don't really see the a personal, um, you know, r responsibility for helping Musk keep Twitter limping along. And folks, you know, if you had a favorite bar, 
and it was bought by some QAnon loon who invited a bunch of white supremacists to hang out. I think you'd go to a different bar. You wouldn't just say, okay, we're going to keep hanging out here because we're irregulars and, and our friends are here. Um, anyway, Max, well, uh, I, I appreciate your reporting on this and keeping us up to date on Musk's bullshit and for sharing your insights with us. I, I really do. Hey, thank you so much. Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then be right back with Dr. Stephanie Langle, who's going to give us an update on the pandemic, which, contrary to popular belief, is not over. Welcome back. I'm joined now by Stephanie Langle. She's an epidemiologist at Case Western University. Stephanie, welcome back to We've Got Issues. Hi. Hi there. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Sure. So um, I have to say that I went to my supermarket the other day and I was the only person wearing a mask. Yeah, the mask wars. It's very interesting depending on where you live and um, what the general awareness is, I guess, or just the feeling of is the pandemic over, quote unquote, or not. It's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating also. Um, so I live in a fairly blue enclave and I live in a county with a high level of community transmission, according to the CDC. Now, to know that, you have to actively seek out that information. You need to go to the CDC's website and look up the county. There has been almost no public outreach. I'm not seeing PSAs urging people to voluntarily mask up. And I understand the exhaustion that public health officials may feel in terms of, you know, not having any appetite to, to re- reinstate mandates, et cetera, et cetera. But, why do you think it is that uh, that we're we're not hearing more about the reasons why people should be continuing to take voluntary mitigation measures? Yeah, I mean, I do agree. I think the pandemic exhaustion and it has set in. Well, I think it's set in for a while, and that could be why that there's not this kind of. Um, Focus, but you know the other issue is this concept of how do we define when a pandemic is over? And I was talking with some colleagues about this. And as an immunologist and who studies the immune response, we think a lot about an, a novel pathogen, something that is new, is something that you have no immunity to. So you have no antibodies, you have no T cells that have ever seen this this virus before, and so you you are really unprotected which could have different consequences depending on what age group you're in, in, comorbidities, all those things. So, you know, a pandemic 
it, it's difficult to say when one is over. What we know about SARS-CoV-2 is coronaviruses, especially ones of this nature, they don't go away. So the common cold coronaviruses, they are still with us actively circulating. We can talk about SARS-CoV-1, which um, for many reasons did extinguish itself because it was more severe. So people got sick, ended up in the hospital, you can quarantine them, boom. But for a virus like SARS-CoV-2, like you said, it will continue to transmit. So then what is the differential that you know determines whether or not we care? And it is this concept of, well, do, is the virus novel to the population anymore? So do we have people who have immunity. And we would say, depending on, oh, particularly in your area, I would say yes, because if people haven't gotten infected already, they have been vaccinated. Or they, the other flip side of that is they have the option to get vaccinated. And so I, I think that as people are transitioning to this state of we're post-pandemic, which the pandemic, you're right, maybe not technically over, but we have the tools, we have you know, maybe we have this concept, a lot of people have immunity, but that can be problematic because we know that people, particularly those in our most vulnerable communities are dying from COVID yeah. still, right? They, they have compromised immune systems. Uh, and so we do spread those viruses to those individuals. And I think that's something that we all have to kind of contend with. Well, we don't mean to do these things, but we spread you know, pathogens amongst each other because we are a part of the community. So I'm with you whenever, I mean, whenever I go to a public place that's crowded, I wear a mask, but then that's the culture that I live in, that I work in. So for me, it's easy, but I yeah. guess that it does come down to this mix of like the science, but also sociology and culture and how you know, the in-group versus the out-group, it's very complicated. Yeah, it is. Now, my downstairs neighbor is uh, just got over I think it was her third infection. She's a server and she has to be around people all the time. Right, right. And she took a home test, tested positive. I'm not, I doubt that she reported that to our local public health department. Given that there's a, a degree of immunity from both past infections and from people being vaccinated and that that keeps people, many people out of the morgue and the hospital and given that people are testing at home and not necessarily calling in those tests, like, do we have a real handle on how high transmission rates actually are? Yeah, I would agree that as we we move towards a point where it's become, you know, more of something we, excuse me, deal with, <clears throat> that there is this less, uh, there's less pressure to call it in because that urgency has been lost. So yeah, I would agree that the, circulation is likely underdocumented because of what you just mentioned. Um, so yes, that is a concern, particularly if you are somebody, you know, in one of those groups where you you either don't want to get it, you don't want to spread it, you do have to take into consideration, okay, yeah, where am I going? What's the potential transmission spread or transmission rate rather? So it it seems to be the case that uh, particularly as we I think it was just announced that the U.S. is pulling. It's it's um, May 11th going to um, the the emergency COVID kind of protocols that are in place to get people covered for vaccines are going to be lifted. So I think as we're moving towards even less of a 
safety net from the government, it, it does put the pressure on the individual yet to have to assess those risks. And it can be scary if you don't have all the information. And I mean, those people get, they assess risks based on, you know, what they're hearing from trusted sources. And um, yeah, I think it, it sends a signal um, that they are lifting the COVID emergency declaration on May 11th. This is also going to be the end of free testing, free vaccines, um, various social safety net measures. And they're doing this, the Biden administration is doing this in part because the House just uh, passed a bill to declare it over. So Stephanie, right, right. we've been hearing since very, very early on that the pandemic ends with endemicity, right? So mm -hmm. a lot of people have seen that as kind of like almost a finishing line and endemicity means a, I guess a level of, ex, ex, an acceptable level of social disruption and harm. Is, is, it, a, is it a social construct? I mean, 3,700 people a week are dying of COVID right now. If we all decide, well, okay, that's, we're just gonna live with that, is, is that endemic? Well, it is an interesting concept because when we think about HIV, I mean, we would also say from a technical standpoint that that pandemic is also not over. You know, we don't have a vaccine prevented, it's not eradicated, it's not necessarily endemic, but it's still circulating. So right. you're right, these concepts can get very squishy. And I think that, yes, as it, it, it is even more challenging, I think, as Americans to come together and coalesce around this thought that, okay, there are a lot of pathogens that circulate that can kill people like SARS-CoV-2. And if we, you know, we're able to agree that in group play, you know, if we're traveling on an airplane, to me, the airplane travel is so obvious because I mean, I used to get sick all the time when I would travel. Now I don't get sick anymore. So, you know, to me, that's like a pretty obvious one. Yeah. But it is a balance. It is very challenging because it, it is, the balance between, you know, does your, you know, can you function and work at your job as like what you mentioned, your friend's a server. Um, okay, we've decided we these businesses should be open, right? So that people can like live and work. But then the flip side of that is, you know, um, what is the transmission rate in that area? And can we accommodate? I, I think when the hospitals start to get overrun, things do get very hairy. I and luckily we haven't gotten to that. We haven't gotten back to that. Um, but it does put it, uh, it, I think, an ethical question out there, too, of how we do treat uh, our elderly and our immunocompromised and our vulnerables. You know, it really, and I don't, I don't know if America, if we compared them to other countries, if we were leading the top in terms of uh, concern for those, for those groups. <laughs> that is a, quite, quite an <laughs> understanding. <laughs> you're, you're much more generous towards people than I am. <laughs> I, I've noticed that in, in the past when we've spoken about this, yeah. um, including anti-vaxxers and all of these COVID pundits, and they they all drive me absolutely batty. So let me ask yeah. you this. If we decide that we are done with the pandemic and um, the hospitals are not overwhelmed, you're able to go and get treatment for other things, you can make an argument that there's a reason for that. What is the potential downside of doing that prematurely when you have 
And if you go to the CDC website right now, they have a map, county by county transmission rates. It's most of the country is either at high community transmission or elevated. What's right. the potential downside of prematurely deciding that it's over? Well, I think unfortunately it is related exactly to the state of our healthcare system. So what happens is the most vulnerable, poorest uh, in our communities uh, are going to suffer the most because a lot of the, the ending of these emergency measures has a lot to do with Medicare, Medicaid, and, and how much that you can get vaccines and treatments and antivirals for free. And so when you can't do that anymore, it goes back to how our, our healthcare system is, is, is and that those are the people that suffer. But sadly, the people you know who are in charge, it's, it's easy to forget about that because you're not in that vulnerable group. So that's the downside. The downside is that, you know, if you if you have a low-income elderly nursing home who's that's understaffed um, and has a run of COVID, it can be, it's gonna be really hard. Um, and so I, that those are the things we do risk when you don't have a very robust public health system that is backed up by a well-functioning healthcare system. So that's what I worry about. I worry about it all the time. And I mean, this pandemic, it's going to be the case that every pandemic, every disaster, natural disaster, what have you, those are the people that are going to suffer. And I always say like, you, you could easily be in that group. It's just because you're not that you don't care. So it's kind of like put yourself in their shoes kind of thing, but yeah. it's easy for people to forget because they're not in that group. They're in power and whatever. So that's yeah. what I worry about. I worry about a lot. What about the other <clears throat> potential hazard in terms of um, new strains coming out that maybe are more resistant to our vaccines or are perhaps more dangerous? Yeah, it is interesting. Gosh, to be able to, to predict what a virus is going to do, you would you would be able to open that Pandora's box and I'm sure make a lot of money because it's very, very challenging. I think that most virologists would not have predicted the Omicron, uh, the, the mutations, many mutations that led to the Omicron surge. So it's very difficult to predict what's next. It is interesting as a new pathogen enters a naive population, you do see it kind of work its way through the various tricks that it's up its sleeve, which just means how many mutations can it incur and what are the, how is that going to behave differently in the population? You know, from the Omicron variant side, it, it, I haven't seen, I have not seen a variant that has behaved as differently as from when we went to, let's say, Delta to Omicron. That was such a huge change and we really saw that difference. Um, I do not like when people call new variants the Kraken or this is the most infectious variant because really they're using a very limited set of tools to assess whether that variant is evading the immune system. They use antibody titers. It's very easy to measure antibody titers. And so I get why they do that. But we also have things called T cells, which can be very cross-protective, of course, in healthy baseline populations. That's why I always say, if you're in one of those elder, you know, if you're in one of these groups, you just get yourself vaccinated. Like you don't, you don't even worry about it. And I hope that they maintain updated vaccine regimens. I would like to have a vaccine for the for the variant that is closest to the one that is circulating. So, you know, I, I can't really say that lifting these restrictions would cause an increase in mutation rate or that a, uh, the Kraken variant would would come about. I, I, I that is really impossible to predict. But I, I more see it as a, as a problem that already burdened communities are going to be burdened further. 
um, before I let you go, let me ask you one other question that may be related sure. to this, actually. Um, there were some predictions of a really big wave that would follow, you know, people getting together for Thanksgiving and Christmas and Hanukkah and traveling back and forth across the country. Um, that there was a wavelet, I would say, mm -hmm. in December and early January, but it was relatively small compared to some predictions that I had heard and also compared to like a year earlier when we also already had the, the vaccine. Sure. Is that, do we know why that is? I mean, is that yeah. a positive aspect of just having so many infections? You know? <laughs> it could be, it could be. You know, it's very difficult because we, so that would be the first kind of Christmas season or holiday season we were, everything was Omicron. So, so the year before we had just transitioned from Delta to Omicron. So all of our immunity, all of our antibodies were really directed against Delta. We really didn't have Omicron circulating. And so it could be that a year of Omicron circulating led to a, you know, a level of immunity that didn't, that allowed for only a wavelet. That could be true. It's very hard to know because you're comparing two different viruses, you know, two Kind of different characteristics of, of the virus. So it, immunity for sure could be it. Um, people's behavior, maybe. I don't know where people masking more on planes and such, but it, probably immunity played a role. I will go back and say the one thing that we can look to in regards to a massive increase of infections that I don't know what's going to end up happening is in China, because they did have a very um, abrupt turnaround in their COVID zero policy. And now they've really just opened things up completely. And so there's there's a lot of vulnerable people. I don't think their vaccine uptake is as great. I, I don't think they're, they don't have mRNA vaccines. So that is actually something interesting that we will be following is to know, okay, because there's a lot more potential infections in a country that had a zero COVID policy where we have been letting, Omer, I mean, Omicron has just been circulating. So we have a more baseline immunity. So just to kind of go back, that would be something I would look towards to see there something's going to come out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And they had such stringent controls and then they just cast them off like from one day to the next. So that is, um, uh, it's, that was a why that was wild. I mean, I, the, the, just to speak, uh, to the virus itself, this is just not a virus that you can control. It, it, there, a zero COVID policy can never work because people can asymptomatically transmit. You would right. really just have to lock people up in their rooms forever. So it, 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 the policy has to be somewhere in between, you know, let's completely forget it exists to the zero COVID. It has to be somewhere in the middle. And that's not what China has done. They've not stopped anywhere in the middle. They've gone from- I, it's, Yeah, it's very- COVID everybody just go out and have have fun it's very interesting yeah yeah i think politically that's an interesting situation yeah it is stephanie langle i believe we're out of time i want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me i know you're very sure. busy yes great to talk to you i'd also like to thank max burns and david edwards our producer and engineer i'd like to thank the good folks at alternate and raw story for supporting the show uh, you can follow me at Mastodon at Joshua Holland. 
Um, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you fine people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Yeah, you know I got to have that medicine, that prescription medicine, baby.